This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Benji, if we have not met yet. Uh, my wife and I, along with a team of other people, have started this uh, church the last few weeks. And so for you guys to be here, worship with us means a lot to us. A uh, couple of things. Uh, we, every week, will dive into this. This is scripture, the Bible. Uh, we believe that this matters and there's a story that God is telling that is not just a list of do's and don'ts, but it is one unified, redemptive story. So we thought, what a better way to do that instead of just going verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but to look at the elements and the themes of story and to apply them to the word of God. Because if we believe this is a unified, redemptive story, let's see how the things that make up a story factor into this. So the first week you talked about characters, right? Every story has characters, and we talked about how God is the main character of the story, yet he lets us play a very significant role in being his image bearers in the world. We're the best supporting actors and actresses in the story of God. Last week we talked about this setting, and this is, it's a part of the story that oftentimes gets overlooked, but it's crucial to the story. And so last week we talked about Genesis 2 and how God tells us in the very beginning a lot about himself and his intent for humanity. So we dove into the Garden of Eden and what that meant for us. We talked about this concept called shalom, everything in its right order, that no matter how dark or chaotic the world may seem, we know that in the beginning and in the end, God's intent is wholeness and peace, and is exactly why Jesus entered into our story to bring that about again. And tonight, we are, um, I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about foreshadowing. As every story, every great film has foreshadowing. Normally, foreshadowing happens in the beginning, like this one does. And what it, it, it's almost like a mini version of what's about to happen in the story played out in the beginning. And this is exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 3. We see this really massive cosmic shift in the story, but it's not just a shift in the story, it's actually foreshadowing of the whole story of God. And we're gonna be hopefully looking at a story that might be familiar to you in a whole different way tonight. Because it's important for us not to just be like, I've heard that and dismiss it, but to dive deeper because again, there's so much in this that we don't wanna miss. And so what we're gonna be doing is talking about something called the fall right? This is what St. Augustine entitled Original Sin. It's the first time we see sin enter the story of God. Before that, it was the garden. Everything was perfect. Everything was great. But here comes sin into the story. Now, for those of you who are new to the church or new to uh, these wordings, sin can oftentimes feel like a disconnected word. We don't use that a lot in our world. But all sin is was an ancient word for an archer who missed his mark. That's all it is. So when someone was shoot an arrow and try to hit a target. If it missed, that arrow sinned. And so when sin enters the story, we see humanity miss its mark. We see this mark of peace and shalom, and we see humanity, uh, despite its best attempts, not hit that. And then we not only get to see that, the context of the fall, but then we get to see what is our response to the fall, and more importantly, what is God's response to us when we fall, when we enter into sin. Because whether, again, whether you're a church person or not, whether you're a Christian or not, everyone cannot deny that sin exists. I was literally reading an article 
by David Brooks in the New York Times this week where this non-Christian person is quoting people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton about this idea that there's something in us that is just born wrong. And a lot of times we think like, well, there's evil people and good people. But the reality is every single one of us have both, don't we? Every one of us has been made in the image of God, but every one of us has this great potential for great good and great evil. And just to kind of prove this, a little case study, um, I have kids. I did not teach my children to sin, right? I didn't have to model it for them to figure it out, for them to figure out how to lie or cheat. Or right now we have our one-and-a-half-year-old son, Augustine, um, and, and I know part of this is just him being a boy, but he's violent. It's just like this call it what it is. His favorite thing to do, what gives him a bigger smile, what makes him laugh harder than anything else in the world is to hit people. Anybody. We literally went to Starbucks one day. He walks in, little toddler goes in, goes up to a complete stranger, looks up like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. And he just goes, whack, kicks him in the shin. <laughs> he has, we have a spatula drawer in our house. He literally will go find it. And all of a sudden I'll hear my daughter's just go, daddy's doing it again. And he's just chasing around like Lord of the Flies, like trying to hit his sisters. I didn't teach him that, right? He didn't like see like, wow, my dad kicks people in Starbucks. I'm gonna do that. There's something in him that I didn't teach is not a social environment that is broken, right? It finds joy in creating violence. He literally threw a pizza, a slice of pizza at my face this week. Yeah, pray for him. <laughs> and pray for me that I have patience. John Calvin literally says that the most violent stage of our life is age two. <laughs> and I believe it now that I have a son. Um, but we have this recognition that there is something in our story that is wrong. And, that, and we're going to call that, for the sake of tonight, we're going to call that what the scripture calls sin. So what do we do with that? How did that enter into the story? But in order to be able to best describe that, in order to, before we dive into Genesis 3, there is a problem. And the problem is most of us will read or have read Genesis 3 with our 2018 modern lens. And we immediately start being like, okay, is there a talking snake? Is that metaphorical? Is that real? How does that line up with evolution and science and things like that? And can I just say it's absolutely missing the point. Because that was not written with the intent to answer those questions. It was written at a specific time period for a specific people. And if we can dive into that, this will actually begin to make a lot more sense. And so if we actually take a step back to understand the context of the fall, we have to put ourselves in the place, in the seat of its original hearers, which would have been the nation of Israel right after they've been freed from the Egyptian rule that they've been oppressed by for 400 years. So the nation of Israel, which started out just as a family, became a nation underneath his oppressive rule. Think about that. So the entire nation has only known its existence as slaves to this really massive dynasty in the ancient world called Egypt. And God dramatically enters this story, which we'll talk a little bit about next week, frees them from it. And then in this, he not only gives them laws, but he begins to start writing down their story of freedom. Now, this is, the reason why this is big is because for the original hearers, they begin to start hearing things like snake. And for them, it's not like, wow, how can a snake talk? For them, they know that the snake represents the crown of Pharaoh's head. Right? It's Pharaoh's crown. Everything that epitomizes evil and wickedness is represented in the snake. So when a snake shows up on a scene, if you're an ancient Israelite, all of a sudden this is really important to you. Because this isn't about our animals talking. This is about how did this enter into our story? 
How does oppressive, wicked, evil rule come to be, and how do we respond to it? So with that lens, kind of with that context, let's read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, open up there. If not, you can read it along with us on the screen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So again, you're an ancient Israelite, you're hearing this story and something else pops up to you. This serpent that begins to speak to you says that he was more crafty than any of the other animals in the kingdom. Now that word crafty, I don't know about you, when I hear crafty, it has that negative connotation, doesn't it? Kind of like that, oh, you're so crafty, right? Sinister. But listen to what the Hebrew word actually means. The Hebrew word is eram, and it means prudent, shrewd, crafty, discerning, sensible, pertaining to wisdom. Fascinating. That when wickedness and evil and sin shows up on the scene, it masquerades itself as wisdom. Isn't that how it always is? When I talk to people who are steeped in sin or struggling with sin, when I look at my own sin, it's often not just because like, hey, there's a talking snake, I'm gonna go, you know, and go and ruin my life. What happens oftentimes is that we are presented with something that actually sounds very sensible and reasonable. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to read your Bible. God knows your heart. You know, it's not really important for you to to do that. You don't really need to love your neighbor. You know, think about yourself. Love yourself. And we were presented with all these things that sound really, really wise, but really what that is, it's a mask of wickedness itself. And this is what we see is here comes a serpent, and this serpent is wise and sensible. And that's what led them into sin. Because at the very beginning, I love this. One commentator said this, that the first sin was not an action, but a belief. It was not a fruit that was taken and eaten. It was an idea in their head that they bought into. Because think about the language it's using here. The tree is called what? The tree of good and evil. Well, before this tree shows up on the scene, that word good is used so often as a term that when God creates something, it is good. So this tree offers a second opinion or a second way of thinking of who gets to define what is good and bad. It's a belief system. It's a trust issue. Every single sin that is ever committed starts with an issue of trust. I love what Ignatius of Antioch said. One of the ancient church fathers talks about sin like this. He says, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. How profound. Now, I know some of you guys are like, well, God doesn't want me to be happy. You know, that, okay, 
Use the word fulfilled or whole, okay? Let's read this again. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness, fulfillment, wholeness, purpose, because that's all sin is. Because when we're confronted with something that sounds smart but we know is not of God, what, we, what we're doing is we're making a decision that, God, I know you said this, but I, I don't know if I can trust you because right now I'm going to trust myself to make my own decision. I'm going to become my own God. And that is exactly what happened in this moment. There was a lack of trust that what God said was good was actually good. Eve, in that moment, Adam, in that moment, decided we would like to define what good and evil is for ourselves. How much does that sound like the current state in our nation? I would like to define what is good and evil for myself. When all that God wants to do is, didn't I show you what's good? Didn't I show you the garden, what it's like without sin, what it's like without death and destruction? But there's something in us that gets caught up in this moment that we, we desire to be the one who gets to do that. Because every, every sin, every failure is rooted in this idea of selfishness. I would like to be the main character, here we go again, of my own story. I would like to decide this for myself. But this is the part that really gets me. Did you guys catch this? That... Eve's eating the apple, and Eve kind of gets a bad rap for this, but did you notice that Adam was right there? He says, and she gave some to her husband who was standing there. Now, I read that, and I'm like, dude, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I know if there's a talking snake talking to my wife, it's time to get the shovel out. You're a gardener for crying out loud. Cut the head off that thing. And you know what's interesting? In Genesis chapter 2, the command not to eat from the tree of good and evil was given to Adam before Eve was ever created. So when Eve messes up and she adds to it, again, she gets like this bad flack for adding to the word of God. But how fascinating that Adam was the one who even passed down to Eve what was actually even said. So here's Adam, and he's watching his wife take a bite of the fruit for one reason and one reason only. He's watching to see if she's going to drop dead or not. Well, God said, if you eat this, you're gonna, you'll surely die. So, you go first, Eve. <laughs> I mean, what a jerk, right? Ladies, come on, women's march. We should like have like a sign, just anti-Adam, right? Like, you punk. But can I also say, when, I, when I'm reading headlines and seeing images of women around the world lamenting, and crying out, I think how much comes back to this moment where moments when they should have been protected and defended, they were not. And men, not all men, I'm not speaking down, but there have moments even in my own life as a husband where I've chosen ease and comfort rather than protection and responsibility. And there's a part of that that's in the DNA of the fall. It continues, and it starts to talk about our response to this. I mean, guys, this is huge. Sin has now entered into the story, and this, this is our response. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the who? The man. Where are you? It's singular, right? He's looking for Adam. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? And he's like, shucks. <laughs> Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, classic line, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I'm like, dude, Adam, you're digging yourself a hole, bro. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In that moment, our response to sin was, is, and always will be, we become a hider. Every time. You see, they were naked and unashamed. The minute they were exposed and they realized they were naked, their response was, I'm going to hide. That has not changed because every single time we feel exposed and there's something in us we don't want people to see, our natural response is to hide. So we'll go hide into social media or we'll go hide into wealth or into relationship after relationship. We find these mechanisms that make us feel covered and not seen so we don't have to deal with the real brokenness inside of us. This is not new. This is something that we see every single day. I mean, Instagram gets a bad rap, like, you know, no one sees the real you. You know, it's only if it's, yeah, that has, that's not new. Happened in the garden. Adam, where are you? I'm over here. Come out. Okay, like my fig leaf skirt, you know? Like there's something inside of us that we don't even want God to see the ugliness in our heart. But in that moment, as we became hiders, God became a pursuer. Can I just tell you something? I love my kids, but they suck at hide-and-go-seek. They're terrible. Pray for them. They're learning. They're growing. We're discipling in our house. But, man, I, there's this, and, and, you know, obviously, they, they hopefully get better as they get older. But my four-year-old, Vienna, she's, we're playing hide-and-go-seek, and she's like, come find me. I'm like, go and find her. I'm like, where is Vienna? And I see her in the corner, and, and she doesn't even play. She's like, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm like, Vienna, you can't tell me where you are. Or Jubilee, who's six, right? And she'll go and she'll find this amazing hiding spot. I'm like, wow, that took me a long time to find you. And we play the second round and she goes back to the exact same spot. I remember I was literally hiding a secret this week with him and I felt like the Lord said, you do the same thing, don't you? When you hide, you go to those same things. I remember when we stopped being youth pastors before we planted this church, there was a six-month season where I felt like the Lord said, don't preach. And I didn't even realize it, but I realized that I was hiding as a preacher. I loved that people thought that maybe I was smarter than I was or they were moved by God, by my messages. And I would have told you, like, no way, it's not part of my identity, but it had become it. It was something I, when I felt insecure, I'd hide in my preaching. We all have them. We all have those things that we run to, those fig leaves that we sew together in our lives. And then, it, but I love this. Not only do we hide, we blame. <laughs> we blame. So pop quiz, who does Adam blame? He blames God. You ever catch that? It's the woman you gave me. And it makes more sense when you read it in Hebrew, but he's not just saying it's the woman, and he is saying that, don't get me wrong, but he's putting the blame back on God. You gave me her. Rather than being like, you know what, God, you told me what to do. I should have killed that snake or told him to shut its mouth. I should have ripped the, the fruit from Eve's tree. But no, 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 you gave her to me. You did this. And Eve just does the same thing. No, I, I mean, don't look at me, it was the serpent. You guys want to hear about Zoe's first sin? This is so funny. She's like one or two years old, and like a good Christian man, I'm watching the NBA Finals. And um, 
And so it's our first kid and stuff like that. We have a little, like, one of those big box square TVs before the cool ones. And it's really low to the ground. And I'm watching, and all of a sudden she goes, and she goes to turn off the power. And I'm like, Zoe, don't touch that, or else you will surely die. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch that. And she's like, oh, okay. And I see her kind of smile, and she, like, walks away, and she kind of, like, toddles back over. And she's like, I'm like, Zoe, don't touch that. And she kind of walks away, and I'm like, that's right. That's right. My daughter listens to me. It's respect in my house. She goes and gets her doll, and I'm like, she's so cute. And she walks over to the TV, sticks her doll's hands out, and turns off the TV. <laughs> Kid you not. And she literally, I'm like, Zoe. And she pulls up the doll. It was the doll you gave me. I'm like, Oh my gosh, Genesis 3 has happened for my two-year-old daughter right now. It was the baby, I mean, I'm watching this happen, you guys. It's, it's so funny. For those of you like, you know, people are good. No, we're not. We're not good. We have the potential for good. And yes, we were made in the image of God, but something entered our life that there is something broken inside of us. And if there is not someone to face it, heal it, and redeem it, we will continue to hide and hide and hide until we become more and more destructive. But this is not what God does. The most beautiful part of this story is not our response, it's God's response. Genesis 3.14 says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. It kind of sounds like Augustine right now. (laughs) Crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Listen to this. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Interesting. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That word desire is the Hebrew word to actually to rule or dominate. One of the effects of the curse is we now see a woman and a man trying to rule over one another rather than co-ruling God's earth for him. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is huge, my friends. This is not just an effect of our soul. We are not just broken. Our world is broken. And this explains why. Because this this brokenness, this fall entered into the story. Painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is fascinating. That Adam's curse was the ground, Eve's curse was her husband, childbearing. And isn't it funny that Adam came from dust and Eve came from man? Their curse goes back to their origin. They chose to believe that creation was not good, and so now that where they were created from is now broken. And the Lord God said, the man has now become, oh, I'm sorry, verse 21, I can't miss this verse. I'm sorry, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. The Lord God made garments of skin, and Adam and his wife and clothed them. 
The Hebrew word for that is oftentimes used for the word embrace. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, or like kind of angelic creatures, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Isn't that fascinating that in that moment, God gave them the gift of death? It says, let's get them out of the garden because if they eat of the tree of life after they've sinned, they will be doomed in that state for eternity. So he gave them the gift of death. He banished them out of his love. But let's go back and let's, let's just check out what's happening here. Guys, this is so rich and so huge and we can, it's so subtle, we can miss it. But as he's cursing the serpent, he begins to start talking about the very first prophecy of the Messiah, the messianic prophecy, when he says this, and I'll put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring, right? And, and Jesus is called the second Adam, right? We trace his genealogy back to Eve it says, and your offspring and hers, will he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Isn't this incredible that in the very beginning sentences of the Bible, not only does it confess God's goodness and human's brokenness, but it says there's going to come a time where that serpent that entered into the story and struck the heel of humanity will have his head crushed. I love what Dr. Tim Keller says, and I came across this quote, and it blew my mind of how much the garden is a foreshadowing of what is to come, that not only is there brokenness in the world, but it will not last that way. Dr. Keller says this, Adam and Eve were in a sinless, painless, bright and glorious garden. The promise was, if you obey, you'll live. And if they took the fruit and ate it, and death and decay, oh, and they took the fruit and ate it, and death and decay entered our lives. Jesus was in a dark and ominous garden. The promise was, if you obey, you'll be killed, but they'll live. And he climbed that tree of death for him, and it became a tree of life for us. Jesus finds himself in a garden, not by accident, my friends, but because he's retelling the story. He's retelling a story that the tree we failed to refrain from, he conquered in climbing upon so that rather than give, being given the gift of death, we were given the gift of eternal life. That that shame that every one of us feels in our lives, whether we want to admit it or not, that shame inside of us can now be placed upon that cursed tree again. And that Jesus coming back into the world was not some Sunday school flannel graph easy answer. It was the most gigantic cosmological shift that had ever happened in the story of humanity that desperately needed to happen because we could not do it on our own. So he went back to a garden, went back to a tree, and when we chose death, he chose death upon himself so that we could have life again. 
God continues to tell this story where the promise was they would surely die. And because God is truth and God is just, a death needed to happen. And again, we can read over this, but in that moment, God, rather than having them die instantaneously, he said, those fig leaves won't do. I'm gonna take an animal, an innocent animal, and I'm gonna take its life so that you can have yours. And I don't know, and I may be reading into this a little bit, but I would not be surprised one day when I get to heaven to find out that that animal was, in fact, a lamb. Because in the first pages of Scripture, you fast forward to the last pages of Scripture, you have this epic moment where John has his vision of heaven. And there's this thing, who will open the scroll, which is a fancy way, is who is going to end the madness? Who is going to put it into the suffering? And he says, and behold, the lion of Judah. And he says, and when I looked at this conquering image, what I saw was a slain lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I've never encountered a more compelling story than the one that God tells us in Scripture. Nothing has made the world make more sense to me. Nothing has answered more questions for me than this unified redemptive story that I find myself in today. Tonight, my, my prayer is that in hearing this foreshadowing of the, the larger narrative of scripture, right? It's all there in Genesis 3, right? Our fall, God's sacrifice, our hiding, his pursuing. Is that this foreshadowing would not just be something you learned then, but it's something you would apply to your life tonight. Where do you find yourself in this story? Because everyone is, every single person in this room, me being maybe the worst, have fallen and have sinned and are worthy of death. And we can hide as long as we want. We can sow fig leaves as long as we want. We can hide in our, in our education. We can hide in our promotions. We can hide in our relationships. We can hide in our social media. But someday that hiding will not work. And the only thing that will cover you is the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And tonight, my prayer is that you respond to it or you're reminded of it. I was praying, I said, Lord, what's the application here? You know, what do we, what do, we do? It's, it's my favorite question. So what, right? What do we do with this? And I was just reminded, Jesus, I already told you what to do. The opening gospel, Mark, chapter one, verse 15 says, the time has come, he said, Jesus said, the kingdom of God, God's domain, right, garden language, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Application tonight, my friends, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Whatever is going on in your life right now, no matter how dark it feels, no matter how much you think you're hidden, you're really not, the response and the offer and the invitation tonight is will you repent and believe? Repent is just a fancy way to say turn. To turn from it. But by the way, you cannot turn from it and not believe. It is impossible. 
The only way to turn is through belief. In Romans chapter 3, it says that it is God's kindness. It is our faith in his goodness that leads us to repentance. So this is what I would like for you to do. I'd like for you just to close your eyes for a moment. And if you want to come on up and play the, the piano for me. And as you're closing your eyes, uh, the first thing I, I would love for you to wrestle through is, have you ever said yes to Jesus before? And by saying yes to Jesus, what I'm saying is, have you ever looked at the brokenness in your own life and said, Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to be the Lord of my life. If you've never done that before, I hope that tonight's the night where all you do and all it takes is just for you to say yes, and you'll begin a journey of turning, of repentance. But it begins with belief. The first sin began with belief. Your redemption tonight will begin with belief. If that's you, you need to say yes to the sacrificial love of Jesus. I'm just gonna ask for you, would you just look up at me and just lock eyes with me? I'm not gonna ask you to do anything. Awesome, thank you so much. Awesome. A couple of you guys, anyone else? Just kind of look up, let me know. Thank you guys for who looked up at me. I, I, According to scripture, it says that there's literally a, a party in heaven because of the choice that you've just made, the gift you've just received. And for those of you who would say, I, I'm a believer, I believe in Jesus, I, I, I'm thankful for his sacrifice, but tonight, maybe you have fallen into a pattern of hiding. Maybe you've fallen into a pattern of blaming. And tonight, Jesus is just saying, you don't need to blame anymore because you've been made righteous. You don't need to hide anymore because you've been made righteous. And tonight is a moment for you just to confess and just to say, Lord, you're what I need. So I just encourage you right now, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, would you just pray along with me in the quiet of your heart? Father God, we thank you so much for Genesis chapter three that so clearly depicts the brokenness that is so evident in our world. But Lord, in the brokenness, you declare and prophesy and model hope and redemption, which will always supersede that. And Lord, I pray tonight for the people who made a first-time decision. Thank you so much for getting a hold of their heart. Lord, I pray that this would just be the first day of a long and beautiful journey. Hard at times, but meaningful and beautiful. And Lord, I pray for those of us, including myself, who know this at an intellectual level, but Lord, emotionally and spiritually, sometimes I still choose fig leaves over the covering you've given me in your son. And tonight I ask that I would stand unashamed in front of you because of what you've done for me. In Jesus' name, amen.